Hello, and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dolman. And this is episode 133. So, Parker, you got some exciting stuff this week, right? Yeah. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that thermal detonator 3D printer thingy I've been working on. Yeah. So, I've been slowly assembling the hardware. So, I've got an Arduino Micro or Arduino Nano. I can't remember which port it is. One of the little tiny cheap ones. The little, the little tiny one. Yeah. So I've got that guy uh, running off a 9-volt battery. Yeah, 9-volt battery. And then I have a um, PWM pin that comes out of it, and that goes into an LM386 uh, op-amp like boost converter circuit. Yeah, yeah, like a big beefy up amp. Not a boost converter, a uh, ampli- just an amplifier. And so basically it's what it's going to do is that's going to produce on the other end of that LM386 is a piezo. And so that will just make the buzzing noise that it makes in, in the movies. For those that don't know, a thermal detonator is basically a grenade in Star Wars. Yeah, it has like a little slide switch on it and some LEDs and it beeps. Yeah, a little side switch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so this is sort of like your unofficial um submission to the uh, design contest, right? Ah, yeah, that's a good idea. Maybe I should like unof- I should change my name to Dillman Parker and then enter it. <laughs> darker Pillman? Yeah, darker Pillman. <laughs> I think you should do that, yeah. Yeah. And so the uh, that's so much a better idea than what I did for the example project. Oh well. Next year, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then so it has a like a 3D printed slide piece that goes back and then on the inside I hot glued a um a uh micro switch so that when you slide it back it actuates the switch and basically that's just going to be an on off circuit so when you it turns on it just runs through the code and blinks LEDs and you know does its uh, sound effects. I don't know when I'm going to finish it. Hopefully next week. I'd, it'd be really nice to be done with it. Um cuz I've been like teasing that thing for like six months now (laughs) (laughs) actually come to think about it with the 3d printed stuff it's so simple i'm just soldering little tiny things together just haven't gotten around to do it it's that's just that's life (laughs) um whatever happened to that uh that r wing that you 3d printed and you were going to town on it's in the drawer I yeah. did work. I did. I'm almost finished with this. Oh yeah, the the T Rex skull that you 3D printed. Yeah, I 3D printed this thing like a year ago. It's like the first thing I 3D printed on my new printer. How, how long did that take? It's actually pretty big. Uh, this took about 36 hours total to print. It's in two pieces. Right. Yeah. It's it's pretty big. Yeah. I'll 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 take some pictures of the uh, podcast. But like, it's all sanded, primed. All it needs. All this thing needs is like a good coat of bone colored paint and then like dry brushed a bit on the uh on the highlights just to you know tone them down a bit so it looks like ancient bone but it it turned out great yeah it looks awesome and the thing is it just sits up here on my 3d printer and i always look at it i'm like i should finish that because it's so close (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah I'll, i'll post a link to uh, that we can get the uh, the STL files for that that skull up on Thingiverse or something like that. Yeah, it's it's. It, I think if you actually just search for T Rex skull on Thingiverse, it's like the first thing that pops up. Yeah, yeah, cool. Did you just scale that up to be as large as your printer can print? Uh, actually, yes, I did. I scaled it as big as I can print it. Cool. 
my idea was to see how that turned out and then paint it and everything. Mm -hmm. And then I would have like a good piece for like my desk at work. And then I wanted to print like an almost full size one. So like cut it up into pieces and print it on the printer. <laughs> like the size of a table. <laughs> well, oh, I said almost full size. I wanted to print it like the size of like a deer skull. And so you can mount it on your wall. Ah. And so and then I'd make, you know, I'd cut a piece of walnut and get a brass plate that says T-Rex, like, and then make some like when when were they around? It, they weren't alive in the Jurassic period. They were alive in the Cretacean? No, I have no idea. Crustacean is a species the, the, of animal. The crustacean period, yeah. Or genres of, of animal. I don't know my biology I, I think I think my, my aspirations of being a paleontologist died when I was, like, five. <laughs> <laughs> when you saw Jurassic Park, you're like, nope. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I want to print one that's, like, about two feet long, mm. uh, and which will take me, like, eight years. Oh, do. for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so I can put it on the wall and then they get look like you hunted it and killed it and mounted it and stuff. You know, actually, a uh, funny, uh, funny side tangent about not getting stuff done. Uh, I, I, I think uh, it may potentially be slightly genetic um, about not getting projects done. And the reason why my father, before I was born, he bought an RC airplane and he built the entire airplane I mean, oh, all the man, way to the point where, no, and get this, the airplane has a gas engine in it. He got all the way com to completion. The only thing he needed to do was buy a radio for it and basically turn it on. And it has, still has not happened. Although two years ago, he found an original, um, an original kit, the same airplane on eBay, unopened in the box so he bought a second one. Oh no uh because his 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 thought is like well if i ever need to repair it then <laughs> <laughs> and like so i'm 31 and this thing has still never been touched so i mean but don't you have a project just like you have an airplane that you haven't finished you know okay no i do not anymore uh and, and here's the thing what? yeah i do not i do not and here's here's why i do not but I, I promised myself I would not move again with that airplane uh, unless it was finished. And like a week before we moved up here to Colorado, I, I called everyone I knew who had like children who were like, this is a really cool airplane. If you want it, you can have it. Like, and everyone was like, no, I don't want it. And it ended up going in the dumpster. No! Like I traveled, like I moved like five locations with that airplane and kept it like there's a p38 if i recall yeah the p38 and it had a wingspan of like four feet it was awesome i was like 12 when i got this airplane kit and i kept it for <laughs> until i was 31 and then finally threw it away <laughs> i oh, wish i could great. go back in time and tell my like you know 12 13 year old self be like this is just gonna end up in a dumpster one day <laughs> like incomplete yeah, 20 years later <laughs> 20 exactly it was it was really cool though i i really i like that airplane yeah so maybe you know maybe i should have just posted it up on like the slack channel and been like anyone want a really cool airplane yeah i bet you someone would have taken it here in houston Oh, well, I tried. I legitimately gave it effort. You know, I was contacting yeah. basically everyone I know, and everyone's like, nah, I don't want that. <laughs> okay. Oh, well. We'll pour yeah. one out for the P38 model. Yeah, for the P. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. So uh, uh, give, give us an update. I know there's there, there's got to be a car update this week. Oh well, before that, more electronics. <laughs> yeah. So the okay. uh, Pinhack Rev Eight has been. We actually started testing a lot of the software we've been writing for the uh, kernel and. We can get the Raspberry Pi part to like switch video, like HD video really quickly and load it really fast. We're actually writing directly like C commands directly to the, um, or C calls, I would say, directly to the Raspberry Pi's uh, GPU on that Broadcom chip. So we actually, I actually bought a book with these commands in it to learn them. (laughs) It's the first time I ever bought a software book to like learn about, um, uh, learn about a system, I guess. What, what's the name of the book? Oh, it's something like it's something like really generic, like Raspberry Pi, like how to program the GPU or something like that. I'll post the link. <laughs> Just it's like it's like it's like dry. the title is what it is. <laughs> and yeah, it, like it. You can't judge that book by its cover. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so I'm working on a uh, hardware version Rev Eight B which puts the um, audio deck on the board just to like limit how much crap you need when you're like prototyping for the system. Cause right now you need like, you need the rev eight and you need a, a um, special cable and you need the, uh, the PCM five. Oh man. I completely forgot what that part number is. PCM five, two, two something. Anyways, it's a, it's that DAC I was using a couple months ago, and we've been we talked a lot about. Um, so that will go on the board, and and you need a pick kit, right? Yeah, but that's normal. <laughs> You're just I'm assuming not too about that. Yeah. yeah, I'm just assuming that you need a programmer for it. So I'm basically I'm trying to limit that custom cable and that daughter DAC board and put it on the board. So hopefully next, hopefully in a month, I have like those built because the design's almost done. So that's going pretty good. Software is progressing slowly, but surely. Now, vehicle Jeep things. So the, um, I, I basically been taking part. So I got all the engine stuff work done. The AC is running right now. Great. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I go and I'm like putting oil into it, starting it up and I back out the driveway. It's running great. I f- hit the switch to lower the real rear tailgate window, and it doesn't go down. I'm just like, ah. so I'm like, I'm at the point where I'm like, everything is working except that. So I'm like, pull it back into the garage. <laughs> so I took the whole tailgate apart, and so I always knew the rear wiper didn't work, which is in the rear tailgate as well. And I'm like, well, since I'm in here fixing this switch because it's basically what happened is the key switch that's on the back um, when it goes out it will disable half your motor mm. and so I'm like okay I need to replace switch and to replace switch you need to take everything out of the tailgate it's like the la- it's like the first thing that goes into the tailgate so of course it's the last thing you need to pull out to fix so I'm like okay I'm going to get the rear wiper working and the rear wiper, the original one, looked like it caught on fire at one point, and the previous owner just like snipped the wiring harness to it. <laughs> so I pulled it out and threw it away and started looking around online. And I was able to find someone who had modified a Dodge Durango 1998 to 2000 rear wiper motor assembly and got that to fit, and it works. 
it like it actually it's the same kind of wiring scheme as the the wagon so you just splice the wires together and it all works and so actually that's what i did today uh i took like a half day from work and i drove over to the local um junkyard so basically you just like go there and then you like use wrenches and stuff and pull the parts and you go inside and say how much for this <laughs> and they now the one i went to is uh down 40 but they're actually really nice this is like the, the cleanest one i've been to like every car was like in a perfect row and they had them organized and if you and i asked them like how much for a rear wiper motor and they just they could tell me the price and that was the price when i showed up with the rear wiper motor so i was like that's the first time that's ever happened to me that's awesome yeah, I can't remember. It's kind of like you pick, you pay. I think is what it's called. I'll put the link because they were they're pretty cool. And the fact that like when you went to go pay, it was heavily air conditioned. Oh, that's nice. Which was really nice. Yeah. yeah so it's like when you're like they they take care of you there, <laughs> sweating out in the yard, and then you come back in. You're like, oh, it's like walking to Walmart <laughs> <laughs> or Target. The industrial air conditioning blowing on you. Yeah, that that place was really cool. That's one of my. That's probably my favorite place. So for thirty three dollars, I got a rear wiper motor, all the brackets, the wiring harness, and then the wiper arm for a Dodge Durango nineteen ninety nine was the one I pulled it from. I actually had to go to two other ones. Like the first two, I found they were in the same age range, but they were missing part of the trim on the wipers. I guess someone needed like the cap. Yeah. And I'm like, I need all the trim. <laughs> so, so, I, so how much, uh, how much like modification do you have to do? I had to just drill a bigger hole in the tailgate and that was it. Oh, really? So the bracket fits nicely. Uh, so, okay. I had drilled two holes, oh. one hole in the tailgate and one hole in the bracket. And then it fit. Oh, okay. Okay. The, other um the person who did this previously i can't remember his name i had the link for the forum post he like made a bracket to make it work yeah and i was just like looking at the stock bracket i'm like if i just drill a hole right in the middle of it it'll fit <laughs> so that's why i did instead okay it was I, a lot easier than trying to make a bracket <laughs> I, th- I thought you were gonna new- do another uh, freeform uh, jazz odyssey welding adventure to get another uh, bracket <laughs> made of <laughs> No, no, no. I'll try and do the least amount of work possible on this one. That's good. Yeah. And for 33 bucks and a half day of work, that's not bad. Yeah. So it all works. Um, I got the rear defroster to work. And I got, so the the rear window works, the rear defroster works, and the rear wiper works. And I am waiting on a couple parts to get the, like, sprayer. That sprays windshield washer fluid. Yeah. Because the stock one, you can't get that part anymore. So I'm kind of like modifying some stuff from other vehicles to get it to work. And when that part shows up, I'll probably have the only fully functional Grand Wagoneer tailgate on the road. <laughs> like everything works in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> so pretty happy with that. And, and I'll say again, the number one way to. Like fixed vehicles is just get the factory service manual because those schematics are invaluable. Just trying to figure out what wire did what. So I, when I hooked up the Durango motor, it like worked exactly the right way. Mm-hmm. So Stephen, you haven't been working on a wagon, but you have been working on another project that you've been working on for quite a while now. Yeah, and it is coming along quite nicely. I'm actually pretty happy about it. So. Um, my U-Tracer uh, PCBs finally arrived, 
which surprisingly I only ordered them, you know, a few days ago. So uh, it's amazing how fast China will get a board uh, whipped together and sh- uh, sent off to you. So, um, but no, I'm super excited. I got my boards in. Uh, Parker can see this, but uh, I've already posted some some. Is that is that a hassle or lead free hassle? This is straight hassle. You know me. If I'm gonna do a project myself, I'm gonna go straight L, capital go, L. Go cheap. <laughs> I'm like, lick it, and then you can find out. Yeah, so um, I, I got the boards in, and this is actually, for myself personally, the first time I've ever done, um, like, actually pasted a board, um, a personal project. Because most, most of the projects, I've just never really felt the need for doing that. But I was like, you know what? It was 7 bucks to get a steel stencil made for this. So I was like, okay. Oh, so you're going to stencil a board now. Uh, well, I, I actually already did. Um, so yesterday I, I spent some time doing um, doing the actual uh, assembly on this, and it went super well. I'm super happy with how it's come out so far. Um, I've made one mistake, which is just super annoying. It's not a mistake that like requires a design revision or anything like that. But uh, when I originally started this project, I was um, planning on using 5-volt relays on uh, for all the relays and there's 56 relays on this thing but i found out or realized that the relay that i wanted to use in the 12 volt version was first of all cheaper and it was easier to generate 12 volts at the higher current than it was at uh at for five volts so i switched all the relays over to the five volt 12 volt uh the thing oh sorry 12 volt yeah the thing that really sucks is all of the driver chips that i chose to drive the relays and the LEDs are the ULN 2003L is what I picked. Now, the L at the end means that it is 8-volt maximum uh, is what that chip can tolerate. It's not really a big deal because I can get the other version of this chip from Mauser. Just, I mean, it's just there, and it's a 50-volt version. But I had originally spec the 8-volt version, expecting 5 volts to be on all my LEDs and my relay coils, but I have 12 there. So the only thing that sucks about that is, you know, once I get the processor up and, and running on this, I literally can't do anything with the board. I can't test any of the displays or flip any of the relays until I get these driver chips in, which, you know, it's Mauser. It's only like two or three days, so I'll probably be able to do it this weekend. But I've got most of the board already assembled. So it's just like, ah, I just want to, like, turn on an LED so I can see it, you know? So uh, have you reflowed it yet? Uh, Yeah, I have. Well, and I was kind of, like, doing it in sections. So, like, the whole um, FTDI chip section, I've I've done... um, most of the display and relay driving section minus those actual driver chips, that kind of stuff. So I already started uh, reflowing it, and it's it's beautiful because I I bought leaded paste from Amazon. Uh, <laughs> I, it was a sixty three thirty seven. Oh, that's the good stuff. Yeah, that stuff's really good, and dude, it flows so good. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really really easy. So yeah, no, so everything's you, gone. Together. Are you hitting it with? So you hitting it with like so? I, did you cut up your stencil? How are you stenciling certain sections? Uh, no, I got full size stencil um, for the board. So this board is uh, six inches. I'm sorry, ten inches by uh, five and a half inches, and uh, I got a full size steel um, sheet for it. So I just built a little frame out of other PCBs, uh, and then just pasted the thing with a credit card, and it turned out really well. So I haven't. I haven't had any shorts or anything like that. So you pasted the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you're just hitting it with a hot air gun then to reflow certain sections. I've done this entire board with yeah with a hot air gun. 
Uh, so it's been super easy. I just put on my TV and did like four hours of hot air <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> but but since it's leaded solder, it, it melts at a lower temperature. So you can you can do larger sections with hot air. Yeah, and it probably has um it's probably rosin flux so it won't dry out as yeah, fast. Yeah, exactly. So so uh th- there was a couple of other, you know, small things where I accidentally had a resistor marked as a wrong value. So um I'm gonna throw together a, a bill of materials later tonight and get that all purchased up. So I I should have this thing actually flipping relays and showing stuff on the displays this weekend, hopefully. So next week, um Next week, it should actually be doing something, you know, something useful. I don't know if I'm going to have, like, all the tube testing functionality going because I've got some programming to do on it. But um, regardless, you know, another another really good thing is everything fits perfectly. Like, I milled that box uh, and everything, all the holes line up. Everything is exactly where I want it to be. Like, it kind of turned out exactly how it should and and I always have my fingers crossed when doing one-offs because you know, it's if you're if you're in like a production environment where you're like do, doing multiple prototypes, it's not the biggest deal when you make an issue because you just fix it on the next revision. But like with this, I sort of get one chance, right? You know, I mean, yeah, I could always do it again, but that's just more money. But the and price time is and so high. Yeah, the price go up. So uh, I'm I'm excited because uh, all the mistakes that have happened so far are are cheap and readily fixable so yeah so yeah we'll see i mean who knows it still has yet to actually function so we'll see what happens with that yeah um, you, you need to apply the the voltage to it and see if it lets the smoke out or not i'm going to install the processor tonight um and actually put power to the board and just see if i can talk to the processor um that's kind of oh that's a good step yeah that's tonight's goal like i don't you know like i said i really can't do anything else with the board but i can start programming and um you know, I've dealt a, a, a bit with STM32 chips in the past, especially at Macrofab. I, I designed a couple of jigs that um, communicated with STM32s, and I certainly did my fair share of programming, you know, customer uh, projects and things. But I, I had never really actually implemented one on my own project. Uh, so this is the first one where I've actually used an STM32. So... Uh, the other day, I, I started getting into you know uh, all the software that I need, and I'm actually fairly impressed. Not fairly, I am impressed with the whole ecosystem that STM has created. You know, for a lot of our listeners, I bet you they're uh, they're probably like, "Well, this is old old news," you know. But regardless, like uh, I'm coming to the game late, and I'm all like, "Wow, this is really cool." So, you know, I, I, STM32 they kind of have an ecosystem that starts with their cube mx program which is basically just a, a configurator and it reminds me a lot of the um, efm8 stuff where it's a graphical version of the chip and you can like select peripherals and things like that yeah you go through a checklist and select things what you want a pin to do and that's right yeah add in peripherals does it have like a, a crossbar well like a pin can be hooked up to like any of the or a comparator can be hooked up to any set of pins it it does have that but it's not gra- that part's not graphical that it, like okay the the part that's graphical is it'll show your chip and it shows all the pins you select a pin and then you tell it what function you want that to be and then there's menus further deeper than that that are just text menus that you say oh i want this 
this to be an output pin with a pull up or pull down or blah 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 and those are all like just selectable lists and things um but but it has it has a whole like a whole section about determining your clock source and your your uh system speed and um you you can basically what's kind of cool is you can tell it hey i've put a x megahertz crystal on the output and i want the system speed to be this speed and it will go through and it'll find the best prescalers and all that stuff to kind of like get to that yeah it'll calculate for you which is i think that's pretty cool i mean like all of these things are not like super magical because you could do them yourself by just reading the data sheet but it makes it it, it it takes something that might take like 30 minutes of reading and five minutes of fumbling around and it turns that into like a few seconds of clicking buttons you know um but the the, the biggest cool or the coolest thing I think with this cube MX program is once you're done, you save that project and it dumps everything into like, you know, all your SRC, your includes your header files, and it gives you all the stuff already predefined and already set up. So everything is done for you such that once you actually suck that into your IDE, you can just immediately begin coding. And I think that's really cool. Oh, okay. That's uh, so. It's a separate. Oh, it's actually a configuration. I'm actually looking at it now. Yeah, it's it's, it's basically a, it's just a configuration a, software thing. Right. It's a standalone. Yeah, it's a standalone thing. And what's nice about it is it's, it doesn't feel super bloated. And say if you if you pick a uh, an STM32, let uh, pick whatever family, um, it will automatically go and download all the all the latest headers and everything for that chip when you go and configure it. So it's not something that like, it doesn't come with everything under the sun. It doesn't do the microchip thing where it gives you just absolutely everything, you know? But the, but microchip will give you absolutely everything except the compiler. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and like MPLAB X is like 900 megabytes worth of just like stuff that you really need like 50 megabytes worth of stuff. Yeah, but like you install all of it and it's just like, now you need to go go get the compiler and just like why didn't this thing have the compiler in it already? Come on, guys. Exactly. And so yeah, the, the, I think the way STM's kind of got it set up is they're really trying to like break it apart into like here's how we help you. We know that you're really picky about your IDE, so you go get whatever you want and just suck in our project, and everything will be great. You know what makes sense is I think what they're doing there is they're separating because and uh and the EFM8 or EFM32 or whatever, Silicon Labs, they've combined that, those two, into the same IDE. Mm -hmm. Whereas SDM is separated it out. And I think that's because that way, if you're at a big company, the hardware engineers only have to worry about the configuration software. Right. And so that so you'd have a the hardware guys, when they're specking out the hardware and doing the pinouts, they can look at just the configuration software and not have to fumble through an IDE to actually set up the pinouts of their chips. Right. They don't. They don't even have to know how to read code to see how a pin is uh, defined. Exactly. They can just look at the configuration. It's super like hardware engineer being hardware engineer and not even looking at like functions or anything anymore exactly exactly or the hardware registers and stuff which is kind of kind of weird because we both both of us like steven and i like we're both like on the middle one foot in in the hardware and one foot into the firmware right right but i know there's some hardware engineers out there that are purists you know all they do is hardware yeah right and so the, this 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 does kind of lend itself towards them so 
Um, but I, I so one of my buddies at work uses um, an open uh, IDE software development tool for the STM32. It's called System Workbench for STM32, which it's been around for a while. Once again, our listeners are probably rolling their eyes being like, oh, my gosh. But uh, regardless. Steven's been living under a rock. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, I've just been designing things that don't require this. But no, so so that's what I'm that's what I'm I'm using. And the thing is, it integrates really nicely with uh, STM's development boards. Um, I bought a uh, a Nucleo board, which is basically a development board produced by STM32, um, or sorry, ST. Uh, that includes both an ST link, which is their programmer, and a development board in one, and it and it integrates really nicely with System Workbench because you basically just plug it in. You you've already configured your device through the CubeMX program, so if it just detects it over USB, all you have to do is start coding, and when you press run, it automatically programs. Like there's not a lot of setup, there's not a lot of like going through menus or anything like that. And to be honest, what was funny is the first time I, I really started playing with this, I was like, "That's all it takes." Like, w- where are all my configurations? Where's my linking? And where's all my like stuff? Because I'm so used to like <laughs> you have to spend the first three or four hours making sure that your IDE software is like happy, you know. But Apparently they've got it down now to the point where like their ecosystem is tight enough where if as long as you have it plugged in USB and you have the right chip selected, it'll find it and it'll program it. Which hey, I think that's pretty cool. So it's like it's basically Arduino had to happen before that to happen. I, I think I think everyone is sort of like realizing that if you make your your system easier, then people will pick it up and just develop long term on it. You know, they'll get into the, like, mm-hmm. the STM family and then they won't want to leave kind of thing. Well, once you learn one thing, you kind of, you know, why should I learn another thing? Right. Well, although uh, to earlier today on the Slack channel, I was talking to uh, a lot of the people about like, you know, what's your embedded choice? You know, what do you like to do? And um, one of our uh, one of the guys on the channel, Zap, who's been on the uh, chat on the podcast before, uh, he actually was saying that he um purposefully chooses different platforms just in a way to challenge himself and to kind of learn more and to go, you know, go further with it. Yeah. But zaps a little weird (laughs) (laughs) in a good way. Zap in a good way. Weird as in probably like, just like that's not the normal thing to do. Although like, I totally respect that. And I think that's super awesome. That it's like, okay, I'm going to like shift my paradigm here soon. Um, But the the funny thing is like, I started programming on, the parallax propeller moved to PIX, moved to MSP430. On uh, then I went to pick 32s, and now I'm on EFM8s. So yeah, I've done a lot of switching too, but mainly because of out of like necessity almost. Right. Right. Yeah. It's not like I'm going to switch just because I need to switch. Like I, I or I want to switch. It's like oh, I need a cheaper microcontroller. Oh, the EFM8s are like dirt cheap. Let's use those. And and that one on top of that, that one was sort of driven by Macrofab uh, as part of the drive. Like you were you were looking at them as like, okay, yes, I can make things with this, but also like I can write articles about these and we can talk about them. And mm-hmm. you, you you know, you can update the macro watch from some ancient PIC technology. Oh, God, that PIC 16. Something else. <laughs> <laughs> you you kind of got most... screwed by that one. And that was that was funny. That was the most frustrating day in my life. That Yeah. 
Yeah, you were fuming that day. Uh, we, that must have been like episode like three or four of the it, podcast, something like that. We that talked was about it. that was uh, around the the genesis of the podcast because that's when that's when we were talking about like how do we like engage engineers at Macrofab, you know, outside of Macrofab, you know, and so we were like spitballing a ton of ideas. And making the macro watch was one of those ideas, along with the podcast. So go go check out the uh, original macro watch version one. It's still on GitHub. But the the, re- what, the issue we were running into with that was there is a the default for like one of the pins is like to use the comparator, and so you had to like write you basically have to disable the comparator, and so it uses the GPIO. But that's in a footnote in this like 300 page data sheet <laughs> on like page like 200 some odd. Right. And it basically made the entire project unusable. Yes. Until you found that out. Yes. Right. And I think that the best thing is I was even talking to a microchip FAE and we could not get this thing working that day. <laughs> and it was that one register we had to yep. turn to a zero. <laughs> But 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 and that's actually not necessarily a super uncommon thing. Like, how many times has that happened to you? Where like it always it comes down to like one bit needs to be flipped. You know, like I've had that multiple times. That is true. The best thing though was his. At the end of the day, he's like Parker. You should just use a mo- more modern pick. <laughs> was <this> well, thing? <laughs> we we had originally chosen that. Almost purely off a of price. It was hundred percent on the price. Well, and and pin count. It had it had the right pins and like yeah. Yeah, it was the minimal pin count for the price. Yeah, right. So, good times. Good. Times. You, so that STM thirty two dev board you had the Nucleo. You know that reminds me of what's that? It reminds me of the MSP four thirty board. Yeah, it's very similar. Especially with where the top half is a um, programmer and the bottom half is the dead board. Now, what's really cool about that one is I think it's a, it's just like mouse bided, so you can just snap it, right? Yeah, yeah. The, this this one this one has slots cut out and uh, it has some tabs, so I don't think. I mean, if you really wanted to, you could snap this. I think it'd probably be a little bit better to either snip it or a hacksaw would do it real fast. Uh, but I think that's I think it's cool because they actually have like legit ST Link uh, capabilities with this. And if you've ever priced out an actual ST Link, you know they're they're not like super expensive. But this is this is twenty two dollars and it's a dev board and an ST Link as opposed to like the legit ST Link that looks like the little you know white beetle. That's well, I don't know forty fifty dollars. Uh, yeah, somewhere around there. And 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 uh, sure that thing is a, like a tad bit more. You know, it, it's not just a raw board with jumpers and things like that. But uh, for for most of us out there, I'd rather pay twenty two dollars and get this little dev board that I can play around with. The um, the MSP four thirty, I remember cutting one of my first ones on a bandsaw. Yeah, because the only way to separate because they had dot uh, dashes where you can cut it, <laughs> but it's it was a solid board. Wait, did it have the little scissors? The, the little scissor symbol? Something like that. Yeah, that's awesome. And so I just use and but you can't cut through FR four with scissors. Yeah, and so I just use the bandsaw to cut right through it. Yep. <laughs> so the, I, I remember one board. of the one of the first PCBs I ever uh, ordered. I um, I knew I wanted four different designs, but uh, the place I was ordering from, um, they wouldn't let you put multiple designs 
or or uh, like they would charge you per design and i thought i'd get super cute and so i like aligned all the boards such that they had lines going through them where i was like i'll just cut them on a bandsaw and uh, i ended up getting an email from the place being like we know that you're trying to do multiple designs and then they charged me a whole bunch more and i was super pissed off <laughs> and and I was like, the the one thing that I, I, I wish I would have done is I wish I would have just put dummy traces that connected all the designs so it did, didn't look like multiple designs, you know? It looked like I intended it and then just cut the traces, but... Oh, say lovey. Yeah. RFO time. All right, on to the RFO. <laughs> so the first RFO is going to be the MacFab Design Contest. So we talked about this last week. Uh, it's a uh, it's Blink and LED. It's sponsored by Mauser Electronics. Uh, we already have entries, which is really cool. Let's just do real quick. Let's just do a a, a real fast recap of that. So, uh, MacFab's having a design contest. Uh, you can um, make a design that blinks an LED. There's four separate categories. If you go to the MacFab website and go to the blog, then you can get more information on that. So uh, just put up one of your designs into one of these four categories. And in a few weeks, we will judge them and you can win $500 in one of those four categories. Correct. The first one is uh, Mm -hmm. the Bouncy Thief LED Blinking Machine by Paul. This one's pretty cool. It's a jewel thief that's like riding on a set of coin cells and a double a battery in a coil of copper and so what a jewel thief does is it kind of like as the name says it kind of like steals low current and boosts the current up to a higher voltage mm-hmm. uh, i guess that's the best way to say it but it um but he's got it set up to where as it, it spins on the battery and bounces at the same time so when it bounces it loses connectivity to the battery, and so it blinks. Yep, it's it's it, amazing. <laughs> it's it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And like you you put this like hand wound coil over this magnet battery stack, and it like dances as it as it blinks. And it's it's beautifully simple because it's just it's two diodes, a capacitor, a battery, and a coil. Yeah. Uh, that that sounds more than just like super simple, but uh, <laughs> if, if you go if you go to the Hackaday.io project that he's got set up, I love it too because it's not like super fancy drawings or anything like that. He's got freaking grid paper with like this hand drawn thing, which I've noticed as the submissions come in. There's a lot of people giving like grid paper with just like here's my idea, and I love it. I, it's like napkin drawings and stuff. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, and there's actually like he's actually even provided like a little bit of a sort of pseudo 3d drawing of what he would have expected it to be and then like the actual thing next to it yes so it's great i love yeah, it that's great so next one is a uh, simple countdown timer mm-hmm. uh by cdm and so this is a little board that has a when it has a visual countdown timer configurable for like five to 60 seconds so it's a has a little microcontroller on it. I think it's a 328 or 18 mega 328p. That's right. And it's a little board. Um, he's using a lot of uh, MacFab like house parts, and a and even the MacFab footprint for the uh, Tag Connect. Tag Connect, yeah. Um, so it's a little circular board, so it's really cool. Um, I can't wait to see if he builds it or not, but he's already got the design ready. And the LEDs are kind of in, they're in a circular pattern. So it has like a rotary countdown. It's sort of like an old like egg timer. Yeah. I think that's what it's supposed to be in the end. It's going to be kind of like a rotary LED egg timer kind of thing. Yeah. So that's really cool. 
And then the last one I picked was um, Disintegrated LM3909 by Dylan. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe some of our younger listeners won't know, but the LM3909 was a national semiconductor part that I've actually used this part before. And all this part does is blink an LED. <laughs> and so he basically yeah. took an LM3909, because you can't buy it anymore, and he basically re-engineered it as discrete uh, like diodes and discrete transistors and resistors and stuff and capacitors and recreated this LM3909 on a board to blink an LED. And I'd, I'd love this. <laughs> you know, I, I was I was really curious about this one because I don't I don't remember what the order was, but this was I saw this one come in early because we only announced the project last week, mm-hmm. uh, and and this one was one of the first submissions, and it's like holy crap, this guy's already got a board made for this kind of stuff. So I'm wondering if he had already had this made and kind of just threw it up there. Uh, old projects are completely fine. You just have to basically say why your project is good for our contest yeah like yeah why is my old project i can't just rebrand it i have to say also why it it applies it's just got a blink an led that's all it's got to do it's got blink an led yeah these blinking lights these blinking lights these blinking christmas lights don't work that, that's a really cool project i, I like that's like the 555 timer that's been disintegrated into its discrete parts. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's also like a 6502, which is oh, you, like the, super uh, impressive. I think it's called the Monster 6502. <laughs> it's like the Mont. Yeah, that thing. Yeah, that thing like is that. incredible. Yeah. So I have to admit, um, one of one of my favorites so far has is not actually a submission. Uh, somebody asked in the Slack channel, and I apologize. I should remember uh, who who it was who asked this, but somebody asked, they're like. If, if I had a circuit that could blink an LED and then I put it inside of a sealed box such that you don't know if the LED is blinking, according to Schrodinger, the LED is both on and off at the same time. So does that count as a blinking LED? And I was like, oh, that's amazing. That's so great. <laughs> <laughs> I love how we can take something um, as mundane as blinking an LED and just get some really great creativity out of it. Oh yeah, I can't wait to see what we get what get next week. Oh yeah. Well, actually, next week we have a guest, so we won't be talking about. It. So hopefully, in two weeks we have we'll have we'll have a fat stack of designs. Yeah, I hope I hope so. Actually, yeah, it's because we only have. I mean, this is only a month long project or contest, so um, there's three weeks left, effectively. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So the next RFO topic is engineering or electrical engineering phone applications. And I'm just going to expand this to be basically engineering phone applications or I would actually say, how about this? Applications on your phone that you like to use as an engineer. (laughs) (laughs) That's that, that. There was like a path that went there. Path to like the least common denominator there. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Because the original question was uh, specifically do you use or what do you use for electrical engineering phone applications? And I, I was like, I actually don't use any <laughs> besides a, um, no, no, there's one I use called calc P C A L C dash P, which is like a programming calculator. So it does like binary hex and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. yeah. which I guess is kind of electrical engineering. It's more programmy, but, but, but if you're using it, in an electrical engineering setting, then it becomes that, I suppose. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, so I, I I have used some application. I shouldn't use is the wrong word. I've explored some applications <laughs> that were like schematic generation and things like that. And and on a phone, it was just like it was too clunky and it felt way too uh like beginnery you know it was just like here you can put down a battery and a resistor and calculate the current and that's great and all but it's just like that's not what i want to use it for you know it's like yeah i currently don't use any like specific electrical engineering phone applications unless you want to consider calculator which i use that a lot yeah, I think calculator is the most used app on my phone. <laughs> What's two plus two? Four. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, okay, so I'll tell the, you. The universe hasn't broken yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so here's here's the thing, and I'll and I'll go. I'll, I, this is this is what I think is important um, to mention with with applications is that you use whatever you need to in the moment to get whatever you need done. Correct. So what I mean by that is most of the time, uh, or at least it's been my experience that electrical engineers do a whole bunch of random stuff. Like a lot of times you you get the idea of going to college where it's like, I'm going to shut down and design this circuit. And like, yeah, sometimes that happens, but like sometimes you're not doing that. Or most of the time you're doing like all kinds of random stuff. For example, today at work, we were printing some stuff on a, on a panel and we were trying to get a really specific color match from a, an older device. Well, I downloaded an app that I could take a picture of the device with nice lighting and then I could get the hex number of whatever that color was and then, you know, like back calculate what we need to do on our printer in order to get that color. So I used a color detection app in an engineering sense to, to, you know, calibrate our printer to get a certain color. So it's not like I use that every day. I downloaded it for that specific application, you know? Yeah. 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 Like uh, it's really funny is the, there's a, I have a bubble level app. I think it's called bubble level. (laughs) Go figure. Yeah. And I actually use that to uh, calibrate pinball machines all the time. Yeah. So I put my, cause the play field's got to be at, you know, from left to right, it's got to be zero degrees, and then from back to front, it needs to be, depending on the game, of course, it's about six degrees. And yeah, and so you can put bubble level, and you put your phone on it, and I, uh, the one I have, it actually will talk to you, so it will it will go like five degrees and stuff like that, and so you can be underneath the pinball machine and you know lifting with your, um, you know, basically you get on all fours and you push up on the pinball machine and so you can lift the legs up and you can adjust the legs set it down and it'll tell you what the angle is and you keep adjusting until you're good yeah yeah that works it's really convenient it's like sped up setting up pinball machines for me like exponentially that's awesome and then there's and then there's the calc p which i use a lot um Mm -hmm. it's kind of really old school now but i really like it because it's just a really good programming calculator that you can have on your phone it basically is like a super calculator compared to like the base android one yeah right yeah and then the um i also use an app called cutter which is not really a electrical engineer but I've, i have used it to cut wire before is it a cut list generator yeah it's cut a cut list generator nice so if you so the i usually usually i usually use it for cutting um 
Like if I have a whole bunch of eight foot stock of like two by fours or like two by two tubing or whatever, mm-hmm. I can say this is what I need to cut and this is what I have and it will generate a cut list and so I can minimize my waste. Right. And here's the curve of my blade and it'll calculate. Yep. Yeah, yep. Take that into account. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So that's I, really cool. It, that's a, uh, um, I, I, I wonder if it uses calculus to do that because I, I remember multiple times back in Cal one and two that uh, you know we we had to do things like find you know the most efficient way to pack a box of of certain size with you know these things where so you had to do like a an uh, you had you had to figure out like what was the best you know method of packing a box and things. I wonder if these uh, if that calculator does something similar to that. I, I would think it would have to. Hmm. Yeah, so. it probably was something similar. So uh, you, there's there's actually two other apps that I've used multiple times, um, and I don't know the names of them because I once again I probably just download them right when I need them. But um, y- your phone can actually make a halfway <laughs> decent function generator for ge- oh, simple circuits. Yeah, and that's actually the funny thing is when I was doing the Jeep uh, the Jeep radio Bluetooth, and I was sniffing signals. Mm-hmm. I was sending it a, I was sending my Bluetooth chip a one kilohertz sine wave from a function generator on my phone over Bluetooth into the device. So I can like, if I can read a one kilohertz signal in the radio, yep. I know the pa- what the pathway is. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the deck on an output of a phone is, first of all, it's meant to drive a headphone load. So it can push a little bit of current, you know, some and uh, so, you know, you can put it into most inputs of circuits and you're not going to load it heavily. And you can usually get, what is it, one volt peak? So you can usually get two two volts peak to peak out of a phone. So it has a pretty usable range there. Um, so zero to, to two volts peak to peak. And um, that's, you know, that's, that's not half pad. It'll also do sweep generation um, and things. And... You know, as long as you're not looking for like lab accuracy, it's usually pretty good. It's it's very good for like the dummy checks, like you were saying. Does it work? Does it not? That kind of stuff. Exactly. Really good for that <laughs> stuff. You know, uh, and at the same time, um, I you can use your phone as an FFT. Uh, so use the microphone. I've done this too. Yeah, yeah. I, I've I've actually used that to detect oscillations before, and uh, like I'll, I'll I'll have my phone listen to what's coming out of an amp and I'll be like, what frequency is that? And I can do an FFT, find out what the frequency is and then figure out what part of the circuit would produce that frequency. Yeah. You, you actually was the one who, um, who, uh, told me about that method. And I've actually used that to diagnose engine issues. Yeah. 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 And so basically what you do is you, you take your, you do a sound recording of your engine Mm -hmm. and because there's, uh, in an engine, there's usually two frequencies. There is the, crankshaft frequency and there's a camshaft frequency and the camshaft is usually double and it's usually double your rpm and so if you have it idling at 700 rpm you take frequency and it's 1400 hertz and that 700 hertz you know it's in the top end where the valves are at and not in the bottom end right it's amazing how that works <laughs> science you know, I, would, I, I would also think that if you know you could probably do this without an app but if your if your engine was knocking for any reason then you, you know, the FFT would probably look absolutely awful, you know? Like, it'd probably be, like, all full of harmonics and stuff. 
Yeah, but it's consistent usually. Yeah. The ones that you worry about in an engine are the consistent ones. Right. When it's not consistent, you're like, okay, that's fine. As, well, yeah, <laughs> if if it if it's some frequency other than the ones you expect, you got an issue. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. And the last topic is going to be <laughs> that was Ask that. Hackaday. <laughs> yep. Well, do you have another app? No, no, no. No, I don't. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So ask uh, Hackaday. Uh, so there was a there was an article that came out uh, a few days ago, uh, and the question was: Is there a common mechanical parts library? So a lot of us electrical guys are really used to there being part libraries where we just say, "Oh, you know, this IC or this processor or this passive component just uses this library, so I just suck it in and I use it." Um, I guess if you listen to our um, podcast where we talked with Embedded.fm, Parker and I go on to a big rant about not doing that. But 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 regardless, like it's it's pretty common for us to to uh, think of parts in that way. You know, like there's I have a library. I just open the library and I grab what I want. Yeah. Um, and someone was asking, is there the same thing but for mechanical parts? And I think that's a really great question. And my favorite thing about this article is there is, sure there is, it's called the McMaster car catalog. The thing <laughs> is, I found out McMaster car does not have everything. Oh, really? What What did they not? Well, okay. They didn't have some obscure Jeep part for you? <laughs> no, they, they have an obscure adapter. I needed a uh, 5 sixteenths 18 thread to 7 sixteenths 20 thread. Oh, stud. Oh, that's messed up. Yeah, weird stud conversion thing and um I was able to buy it from a from a from another vendor, but like McMaster card didn't have it. I'm like that was one of the first times I'm like, "Huh. Well, then." <laughs> McMaster card let me down. You know, once. those those kind of situations <laughs> right there, which I've I've run into myself before. Those are the ones that make me feel like it's justified to spend $10,000 on a lathe. You know, <laughs> so I could have threaded that. Yeah, myself. yeah. You'd be like, "This ten thousand dollars was worth it." <laughs> yeah. the The best thing was like after uh, seriously the first time when I checked McMaster Car and it didn't exist on, they didn't have it. I'm like, I I actually thought I'm like, maybe this part doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, that was actually there's my some first reason thought. why it's impossible to make this part. <laughs> yeah, maybe it is, and then I. Did some Google searching and I found found the right part, but yeah, it was like, man, maybe this part doesn't actually exist. Well, okay, and and uh, so the McMaster thing, I think personally that the whole idea that McMaster is like what you know what we all go towards is because McMaster is so nice for electrical guys because you don't necessarily have to be like super smart on the mechanical side of things like McMaster kind of holds your hand a little bit through it. And so like, that was the first thing that came to my mind too, was McMaster. Yeah. The best thing about McMaster. Okay. This is the thing about McMaster's catalog is you go there and you're like, I need this part and it has a really good uh, selection. It's just like finding a resistor, you know, you need a, a uh, you need a 632 and uh, this long and this kind of head. Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah. these are what we have and these materials. It makes it really easy. And then when you finally narrow down your selection, you can click it and you get a drawing of the part. And it's exactly yes. what you get. And I'm like, and you can, ah! you can download a 3D drawing half the time. At the same time, if you're in Fusion 360, 
doing 3D CAD, they have a plugin that allows you to search McMaster Kart and suck in parts <laughs> immediately. Like, it's amazing. Yeah. It's just like, that's what I like. Cause like, that's the thing is when you buy a part, like a LM358 from, from TI, you know exactly what you're going to get because there's a data sheet and you can read it and everything. That's what McMaster Car is for mechanical stuff. Yeah. Is there is a drawing there. Sorry, my dog is chewing on a squeaky toy. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's how it is. It's just like... So I, I haven't read this article all the way. Um, it seems that McMaster Car is the only thing in here, though. Well, okay, so so the answer to like the 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 underlying question that's there is no. There is not a common mechanical part library. Uh however, everyone that I've met kind of makes their own. And and what I mean by that is like you you for some reason you needed a screw through your PCB so you designed a, a part that is a screw or something like that. Uh, or you know a standoff, a hex standoff, or pick whatever you have. Like I've in a lot of electrical engineers I've talked to, they make their own like EDA tool mechanical parts. Uh, yeah, I have, I have know? that. Yeah, and I so have just, a. Me- I have yeah, a- you have that. I've got my own. Yeah, like I even have, I even have like a specific. I, I've created like a a part that I can put onto my schematics that it, I call it bomb part. Uh, and what it is, it's a placeholder for a mechanical part that goes along with the PCB. Oh, that's a smart idea. So if I have a washer or anything like that, yeah. So so what happens is whenever I out export a bomb from Matt from my uh, from Diptrace, it automatically pulls that in part number a mechanical part. Yeah. Oh man, that's a good idea. I'm gonna start doing that. Yeah, it works super well. And so the the answer is yes, we all do that, but that's because that works for us, you know. <laughs> It would be it would be really cool if um, if there was some way to like link it all together or a bigger part library and and in fact actually the the I got it what's that I got it it's going to be quarter twenty bolts yeah with uh quarter twenty like nylon nuts and skateboard bearings <laughs> that's all you get <laughs> well okay but but let's let's be honest for the, for the uh, uh, PCB world. You need to. You have a separate one that's just like M3 screws and 440 screws, and in different varying yeah. lengths and stuff. So, yep. Yeah. And 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 we don't need to worry ourselves on the electrical side. We don't need to worry about like what kind of screw head or anything like that. Everything is Phillips, and everything is just like a regular pan head screw. You know. <laughs> what if you threw in some JIS? Just to mess with people. No, screw JIS. Because <laughs> that's exactly what it does. It messes with people. <laughs> I'm actually a big fan of uh, hex head. So. Yeah, hex, yeah, yeah. But it like I don't think you're going to get a hex head in a 440 screw. Yeah, you can. I've got some. Really? You've got to be yeah. tiny. Yeah. Yeah. Wait. When you say hex head, you're not talking about socket head. Uh, socket no, caps, right? No, like a button top. Okay. Yeah, button top with a uh, sunken in hex um, for a um, like a Allen wrench. Yeah, those are socket head and not uh, socket caps or whatever they call them. I don't think they call them hex head because a hex head would be like a bolt. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. Hex heads external hex, and then a socket cap is a is yeah. Socket cap is internal. No, yep, that's what yep, that's what right. I was thinking because I'm like, man, a, a 
hex head bolt on a 440 would be tiny. <laughs> yeah, See, you're this right. You right. probably what, shear that pretty easily. This is what happens when electrical guys start arguing mechanical stuff. We get way off in the weeds and we're like, we have no idea what we're talking about. We have about. no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> but, buttonhead yeah. hex hex um, is what I like a lot, mainly because they, they just look nice. Yeah, they do. They give a more finished look to the product than uh hex head you know not hex head um uh philip said and and one way to add to in my opinion instantly add class to your product this adds cost to the bomb but if you have a sunken or a countersunk hole with a socket head cap or a socket head uh a screw such that it, it fits flush down into the hole that looks really hot that means your case is also really thick <laughs> Yeah, if it, if it can handle that, yeah. Especially, like I've seen a couple of um, uh, anodized aluminum cases where the 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 screw fits all the way down in and sits flush, and that looks hot. That's really nice. But it's excessive in practically every way. But it looks really yeah, nice. You got a quarter inch base plate <laughs> for your enclosure. <laughs> Why Just the so hell you can not? Sink that head all yeah. the way down. Yeah, this is yeah. Tales from an electrical engineer's. Ideas on mechanical design. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So I think that will wrap up this episode. Yeah. This one, we apologize for the 30 minute episode last week. Hopefully this will, uh, this will make up for it. Oh yeah. We, I think just clocked over an hour. Yeah. There we go. So that was the MacFab engineering podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. See you later next time, guys. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project topic, blinky LEDs, or mechanical libraries that you want Stephen and I to discuss, tweet us at macrofab or email us at podcast at macrofab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest map episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen, as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us. Also, if you want Stephen and I to talk about video games sometime, let us know as well, because there's some video games that we've been playing and be fun to talk about them later everyone